Hey, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. I'm Jake Wiskirchen, and this episode is about fear and surprise. Those are the last two emotions we're going to cover in this five-part emotion series, two per part, for a total of ten. And uh, I'm, I'm going to, the reason I paired the emotions the way that I did is because a lot of them are related to each other. These two don't necessarily uh, relate, but surprise just kind of envelops all of it. And it's, it's a much shorter emotion to explain. So I'm going to spend the bulk of this on, on fear. But in the meantime, you can learn about Zephyr Wellness, which is the sponsor of the show. And that's my company that I co-own with my co-owner, Lindsay Bell, in Reno, Nevada and in Sparks, Nevada. And if you've never been to Reno and Sparks, you should. And if you come by, say hi to us. We're also operating in the rural areas of northern Nevada, uh, pushing into schools and bringing uh, care to people who may be inhibited by different things like transportation or children whose parents work during the days and can't get them to uh, a regular daytime appointment. So we're really proud of the work that we're doing. And uh, if you want to learn more, check out ZephyrWellness.org. Check out the Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel. Uh, It's it's basically just one guy, me, uh, doing videos, much like this podcast, uh, but but in video format. You can see what I look like uh, with a beard, without a beard, with my kid, without my kid. Um, but that's enough about me. Let's talk about emotions and um, how you can learn more. If you're listening to this on Dash Radio or if you've only ever known us as a podcast, Noggin Notes is not just a podcast. It's an, a mobile app as well, and I encourage you to download the mobile app because it's an awesome way to track your emotions and then link them to the thoughts and experiences that uh, result in those emotions and what you can do there. So you click on one of the core 10 emotions. You then click on uh, something a little bit more specific, a synonym emotion perhaps. That'll lead you to an area where you can make a note, hence the name. Noggin notes and those notes get compiled into a timeline that you can then review either with your your counselor or your therapist or um, or just on your own uh, so it becomes a digital journal of sorts all in the in the per, all for the purpose of increasing personal self-awareness and um, hopefully helping you live a better happier life and uh, bringing more peace into your world so download the Noggin notes app if you haven't and check that out it's a great tool for gaining insight this is fear and surprise and um, without further delay let's enjoy the podcast so today we're talking about surprise and fear uh, and it will go in that order actually because there's a lot more to be said about fear than surprise and I'm just going to save that for the end of the show so the first part of the show I'm going to talk about surprise and just to give an overview for those who may be tuning in just now this is uh, the fifth part of a five-part series. You don't have to necessarily take them in any particular order, but this concludes it, and uh, we're doing two emotions per part, um, and they're all on a continuum from very small to very large. So the small end of surprise might be, um, you know, surprise, all the way up to astonishment. We might have startling in there somewhere or, or shock. So so those are some of the synonyms that you can use with, with surprise. And then fear, um, you can have a little bit of fear where you're a little, little scared, um, alarmed, nervous, maybe we might, we might call that, uh, somewhere on the fear continuum all the way up to terror. Terror would be the, the most fear that you could, you could possess. Um, and these are all triggered by various interpretations of, of events and, and so forth. Uh, we can also manifest emotions from our mind based on where we direct our attention and all emotions serve an adaptive function, meaning they tell us something. They're neither positive nor negative, although we certainly attribute 
whether or not we like something more or less than the other thing uh, and, we, and we call them plus or minus emotions or positive or negative emotions and, and fear is probably one of those negative ones and surprise is somewhere in the middle. It's, it's, it's probably less pleasant than joy, you know, happiness, probably more pleasant than guilt, shame, contempt, disgust, uh, you know, so forth. So um, we want to acknowledge that they're neither positive nor negative. They're simply informative. Even though we have judgments about what we want to feel, uh, what we really need to be doing is learning from them. So what do we learn from the emotion of surprise? Well, surprise tells us that uh, something has happened that we did not expect, and it also serves as a, a reboot mechanism to clear out the system and prepare us for what is about to happen uh, subsequently. So uh, often we refer to the, the first thing that happens in the order of the the brain is uh, the fight or flight re- reflex, right? The, the fight, flight, or freeze, as it is sometimes called. And that's triggered through the amygdala. And the amygdala, or the, the amygdalae, actually, there's two of them on either side of the, the brain at the, at the back of your, like the middle rear of your brain. Uh, they respond to stimulus, and, um, and it says, hey, hey, brain, something's happening engage and then subsequently your your body engages beyond that so surprise is activated by a sharp increase in stimulation so the external condition for surprise is like any any sudden and unexpected event and i'll uh i'll, I'll clarify unexpected a little bit later um, but the event may be you know a thunderclap or it may be a, a gunshot or boom of fireworks or a slamming door maybe maybe just a friend suddenly appears that you didn't expect and uh so you have a moment where the the system resets and clears out the chemicals that may have been been existing and says uh, be prepared something else is happening. And you may be wondering what what chemicals are just you know hovering in your brain. Well, when we're at rest, we're not entirely unemotive. In fact, if you listen to the uh, the interest excitement uh, podcast that I did, I think uh, that was excitement and joy, if I remember correctly. So excitement and happiness were in the same podcast, but excitement and interest on the same continuum and it's said that when we're at rest we're not fully non-emotional in fact the the emotion that keeps us awake and alert is that of interest so we're we're interested in what's going on at least enough to stay awake so uh you can be just sitting doing something and you're you're interested in it whether or not you actually concede that you're interested in something like a report at work is is aside from the point but um you're the emotion that's that's rolling through your head is is interest, and then maybe a door slams or a book falls off a cabinet, and then surprise kicks in, and and I snap my fingers like that, like boom, there it is, like you're surprised that that happens, and it's telling the brain to to pay attention. So everybody's familiar with this, but it's it's really difficult to describe, and one reason for that is that it doesn't last very long. It's it's probably the most fleeting feeling that we have in our brains. Uh, and, it, and it almost, because it's so fleeting, it almost doesn't seem like it should be one of the, the 10 core emotions that we have. Uh, but it is because it stands alone uh, unto itself in not only its function, but also it's, it's, uh, it's not like anything else. It doesn't, it doesn't get combined uh, to, to, be its own th- to, uh, to be something else like um, jealousy combines often with fear and uh, and maybe interest or fear and um, and happiness would you know might be jealousy. So uh, surprise stands alone, neurologically speaking, 
And um, this, the situations that evoke surprise are usually experiences being about pleasant, as pleasant as situations that elicit uh, interest. So interest, excitement, uh, surprise, happiness, joy, you know, th- those uh, words are all usually associated with something positive and pleasant and, and enjoyable. Um, but like I said earlier, it's, it's probably, uh, you know, surprise probably lands just below uh, happiness and, 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 and interest. And yet above, you know, sadness, fear, anger, disgust, contempt. So um, if, we, if we're thinking about what the function is of surprise and why we continue to have it, we want to pay heed to the significance that even though it's very fleeting and it motivates very little action, we, we know that it, is, it prepares us to be able to deal with sudden changes. So uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, failure to change one's own ability to motivate after the sudden appearance of, say, a, a predator uh, could result in harm or death. So we, we don't just instantly jump to fear uh, because something dangerous appears. What we do is we, we process the surprise first because, it, like I said, it, it, wipes, it wipes the mechanism clean. So I'll get more into fear in a minute, but um, I already teased it a little bit. It's basically to tell you that, that a danger or a threat is present so we'll talk about that in uh, after the break, actually. I'm going to take a break in a, a couple of minutes, and we'll get into fear. But for now, let's continue focusing on surprise. And I want to talk about how surprise usually is uh, associated with an unexpected event. But there's uh, some research. Uh, it's actually a, a lit review, a literature review from uh, William Charlesworth, who studied uh, studied the, the function of surprise and defined that um, there's a difference between unexpected events and misexpected events. So if we talk in terms of misexpected events, what that invites is the idea that we can have an expectation of something. And this is important because in the in nature, if you're just going about your business and something uh, surprises you, what you're basically, your brain is basically processing is that you had an expectation that that thing wasn't going to happen and then it did, or you had an expectation that something was going to happen and it didn't. Now, the, the very clear distinction between those two is that when you have an expectation that's not met, we define that as sadness. And a little bit of sadness could be disappointment all the way up to great sadness, which would be called anguish. Now, with surprise, we're talking about not expecting something that does occur. So there's a, there's a, there's a positive uh, interference into the life. Something is added that, that was, not, um, was not anticipated. Um, completely unexpected has nothing to do with uh, creating expectations. So the idea here that, that Charlesworth uh, determined was that surprise defined as misexpected events it cannot possibly occur until you're about six months old because cognitive development enables us to to form those expectations or assumptions. So if you work within this this type of uh, framework, there's a good case for assigning an important role to surprise in uh, cognitive development, meaning our ability to think and perceive and, and uh, determine things. So this uh, this relates directly to those of us who may have experiences of constantly being frustrated, constantly being let down um, by the same thing or same entity or agency over and over again. Let me explain. Some people are really frustrated with uh, large entities like, say, Congress. They seem big and behemothian and overreaching and um, immovable, right? 
and yet we're constantly frustrated with the outcomes. They're not doing what we want. They're taxing us too much. They're spending inappropriately. They're doing whatever they're doing, right? And we always, we always have these complaints. Well, what we're failing to account for is our own ability to create those expectations within our own heads. And we can do this with spouses, uh, you know, other domestic partners, roommates, uh, bosses, employment terms, really anything where we, we, we experience a constant letdown. And the response for, for me as a clinician is, well, what do you expect? <laughs> you have this body of history that has determined the characterological traits of whatever it is that you're complaining about, and yet you continue to expect differently. That is incumbent upon you as the the person who's always surprised to adjust expectations and align them a little closer to reality so that you're not constantly experiencing that, you know, on your heels, um, you know, what the heck happened here? Uh, when history says exactly what happened is what should have happened. So it's incumbent upon us to align our expectations with Congress that says, well, you know, historically, since the beginning of Congress, they've always taxed, they've always spent recklessly, they've always bloated, you know, whatever it is that we can historically reasonably see, you know, they're unresponsive to my letters, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then we can align those expectations a little bit better with reality so that we're not at least walking around in constant surprise or disappointment all the time. Now, I want to issue the, the qualifier that says aligning expectations with reality does not mean that you have to endorse the reality that's going on it doesn't mean you have to support it or condone it or say that it's okay it's just that you have to acknowledge it so for me in the clinical world i might be dealing with a with a teenager who's at odds with his parents and the parents are just really rigid in their application of rules and they're not they're inflexible and they don't understand the kids dreams and hopes and desires and all that and and maybe this has been going on for a very long time despite our best efforts to help introduce new information to the parents and help them see a, a little bit different angle and my response to the to the kid would be well, why, why are you still surprised at this? And that's a reasonable question to ask because it's up to him to create his own cognitions about what he gets surprised about in that relationship. If the same kid is walking down the forest trail and, um, you know, the, the, the forest says, uh, I'm sorry, there's a sign at the trail that says, you know, um, clear path ahead, but then he runs into, you know, a rock pile or a, you know, a big snow drift, he can reasonably say, well, they, they created an expectation that wasn't fulfilled. I'm, I'm surprised at that because I was promised something that wasn't delivered, you know, a clear path, and instead it's covered with rubble or whatever. That's a reasonable expectation to be surprised at. Um, what's not a reasonable expectation is someone's behavior repeatedly across time you go, man, I can't believe they're still doing this. And I was like, well, what do you expect? <laughs> They've demonstrated to you that they're going to continue doing this. So that's an opportunity for us to bring a little bit of peace into our lives by aligning expectations with reality while simultaneously saying, I don't like it. It's not, a, it's, it's not something I prefer. And yet I acknowledge that it is actually happening. And uh, if I could birdwalk just a little bit more before the break, it's the difference between acceptable and acceptance. And I know that seems a little vague and possibly hair-splitting, but let me explain. Acceptable has to do with desirability. So if, if a parent says that's unacceptable regarding some uh, rules that may be broken by a child in the home, that's fine. That's, it's, not, it's not acceptable. It's undesirable. But for that same parent to say, 
I won't accept that he's doing this, that's almost a denial of reality. You have to accept that he's doing it. He just did it. You know, it's like whether or not the kid's throwing food across the room or he dropped his pants and peed on the carpet right in front of you. That's a really colorful image. Sorry for those of you who may be driving and now are laughing at your windshield. Um, (laughs) The image of a child peeing on the carpet, especially if that child's an older child. Anyway, um, we have to accept that the that the the peeing on the carpet is happening. It's reality. It's right there in front of us. Doesn't mean that it's acceptable, though. And that's the difference between aligning expectations with reality and condoning the actions that are happening. I don't have to condone the actions of of a, an undesirable Congress, but I do have to accept that it's that it's currently happening. Otherwise, I I get continually frustrated because I think somehow I'm going to change it when what needs to change is my expectations of what's happening based on historical uh, data. So let's take a break. Um, I'll come back after the break and talk about fear and see if I can confuse people even further by using more words that sound exactly the same but have two different definitions. Uh, You're listening to the Noggin Notes podcast. This is Fear and Surprise. Okay, hey, we're back after the break, and we're going to dive into fear after exploring the the concept of surprise. Now, there's a lot written about fear. There's a lot of uh, different functions of fear, um, but what we want to focus on right now is the adaptive function of fear. So what does it help you do with regard to the environment? Um, I already told you in the beginning, I gave it away, that the the reason we have fear as an emotion is to tell us that there's a threat or a danger present. Typically, these these threats uh, and dangers are to physical harm or safety, but they can also be ideological. So if you have a belief system that's being challenged, you can be scared to let go of that and scared to take in new information and integrate uh, different concepts because what it, what it inevitably means is that you have to leave behind something that's probably served you really well and been comfortable for quite some time. So when we talk about the characteristics of fear, um, it can it can present in very different formats, um, but but across cultures, it tends to be the one emotion that people uh, well I'll use the word in the definition fear the most. Uh, when asked what they dread among the 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 different uh, neg- so called negative emotions, um, regardless of culture, people reported fear. They don't they don't want to be afraid, and that's pretty understandable because I think by and large people just want to be secure and they want to know that things are predictable and uh, outcomes will be reasonably guaranteed. So this has all sorts of implications across many, many uh, uh, avenues. And one in particular is a loss of control. Uh, We don't want to lose control over things. And so fear can happen when say, uh, divorce takes place in the, in the heart of a child, uh, when parents are, are splitting up, it can create a lot of fear about what the future looks like, whether or not uh, mom and dad will get along, how much time will be spent at one house or the other, um, and then ultimately just possibility of loneliness and being left alone and having to navigate new, new pathways. So, so fear can take, take the, the form of a very different um, presentations depending on not only the circumstances and the triggers but also the person who's experiencing it and and I'll get to that in a minute too regarding lenses and and cognition so um, when we look at um, emotions as causes of fear um, we can we can actually embrace the idea that sometimes we can have uh, like a surprise event or a startle uh, result in a fear response simply because they're they're so neurologically similar that um, 
they represent a loss of control, right? So if you think back to the beginning when I go, when, did the o- emotions overview, I talked about emotions in the form of a wave. And at the crest of that wave is a loss of control where you, you, don't, you don't have any choice over whether or not you feel something. So if your habit has been such that you stuff down emotions, avoid them, bail out, uh, cover them up with substances, whatever it is, um, fear being one of those emotions that you can't or you already can't tolerate, um, the very notion of feeling anything, even if it's positive, like happiness or uh, excitement, can result in a fear response because it means by definition that you have to lose control, at least neurologically speaking, in order to experience it fully. Now we can dabble in these things and and pay lip service to yeah I, I I was I was ashamed yeah I was I was scared yeah I was um uh guilty I I felt I felt sad what you know, like you can intellectualize it just a little bit but that's not really riding the wave. Riding the wave means fully embracing the thing that you felt maybe expressing some tears but ultimately you're losing control there for for at least just a split second, if not for many seconds at a time before cognition restores and you pull yourself back together. So think about the stacking effect that would occur if you don't know how to tolerate emotions or, you know, family culture environment has, has told you that it's inappropriate. So you learn to avoid them. You learn to bail out, you learn to stuff them down. And then a a fear response comes you already don't you're already not skilled at tolerating emotions now you're asking to tolerate the peak of that emotion that you already can't control which is the scary part of letting go and you've got now a fear on top of another emotion on top of the loss of control and so it can really result in some anxiety and and fear chiefly is the root of anxiety um anxiety loosely speaking and i've defined this before i'll do it again has to do when we fixate our thoughts on something in the future that we can't do anything about because it's not here yet. So again, that loss of control, that loss of predictability, uh, nothing in the future is guaranteed because it hasn't happened yet. It's not here. So so we can absolutely have fear about that. And that's typically where anxiety uh, finds its roots is in fear. Now, contrarily, depression is when we fixate our thoughts on something in the past that has yet to occur. Uh, I'm sorry, that has already been, has already happened and we can't do anything about because it it's, it's already over. And so we're fixating our thoughts there, and typically that's rooted in sadness. So we're not talking about sadness. We're talking about fear and its relation to anxiety. I'm not going to go into anxiety. That's its own podcast. But for now, just the the discrete emotion of fear tells us that there's a threat or a danger, and sometimes that's a a threat or a danger to um, interpretation, belief system, ideology, and that's exactly what happens with anxiety. When when you're looking into the future and you you can't see it because nobody can predict the future, of course, we're going to have a fear response to that. It makes complete sense that we would. So now let's talk about what fear looks like with regard to um, natural versus learned fear. So natural fear can come from, say, a fear of heights. And I don't want to say that all fears of heights are natural because some of them are learned as well. If you, you, know, if you picture yourself standing on the arm of a couch at four years old and mom panics because she doesn't want you to plunge off and crack your skull open, she can teach you to be afraid of being up on top of tall things. Uh, However, we do have some evidence through research that shows us that babies who have depth perception, which is uh, right around the the five-month period, can 
express fear when placed on something that looks like a drop-off, uh, you know, a, a couple feet maybe on a, on a table. Uh, this experiment's totally safe. They're not putting babies next to things that they can fall off of. But what they do is they'll put a plexiglass surface on one side, uh, like a, a, an island in the middle, or they'll set the baby, and then on the other side they'll put a, a shaded area that, that looks like it's solid. So they'll turn the baby to one side, they'll turn the baby to the other side, and they'll, and they'll monitor heart rate and so forth and pupil dilation. And so, so we know that there are certain fears that are inborn, and one of them might be the fear of heights. However, it can also be taught, as I mentioned before. If mom freaks out every time you climb up on this tall object, you'll, you'll learn to be afraid of heights. We've also seen this in monkeys. So uh, there, was, there was some experiments done in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, that had to do with taking uh, monkeys reared in the wild who were taught to be afraid of snakes monkeys reared in a, in a laboratory environment and basically in a, in a controlled non-threatening environment had no such reaction to when introduced to a snake or a snake-like object so there are certain learned fears that stick with us for a really long time and then we we end up handing those down oftentimes to our next generations uh, we've seen this through um, survivors of, of say you know genocide uh, post-world war ii where people are taught to be afraid of certain things based on the way that they look or talk or act. And this is, this is also how um, racism comes into play. And so not all fears have to do with rational decision-making based on, um, you know, real danger or threats. Some of them are perceived and some of them are completely erroneous. But nonetheless, they are taught to us by our environments. And it's important to know this when we feel the fear within us um, we, we can separate out what is rational versus irrational, and that's the, the return to cognition. But in order to return to cognition and master those fears, or any emotion for that matter, we have to acknowledge what it is that we're feeling right in that moment. And that's why I'm, I'm so big on these 10 emotions. If you can identify which one you're feeling at its core, you can embrace it, know that it's yours, and then do something about it with a reasonable approach rather than if you're avoiding it or stuffing it down or mislabeling it as something else, you're not going to have an appropriate response to your environment. So that's why I'm big on this emotion stuff because it, it really matters. It's got, it's got evolutionary significance. It's got um, practical application in, in healthy communication among other people. Um, and so when I talk about the, the fear component specifically – we don't want to be unconsciously afraid of things that are not necessarily dangerous. We want to we want to acknowledge this and go, "Well, what am I feeling here? Okay, I'm scared. Why am I okay? First of all, it's it has to be okay to be scared too. By the way, if you're taught that fear is not appropriate, it's really hard to get to that point where you can embrace it and make sense of it. So, I'm scared. It's okay to be scared. Um, but do I need this fear? And all this can happen in a, in a matter of just a couple of seconds. Um, if, uh, if, you're, if you're walking down the street and you see somebody of a race that you've been told is dangerous or to, to shy away from, you can check that and go, well, what evidence do I have that says that this person of a different skin color is somehow a threat to me? And if reason penetrates, you can override your, your own fear response. And that's where, where I want to go with this segue is the techniques for controlling fear. So we have several. One I just listed, which is the, the reasonable application of facts and data and logic to the, uh, the expression of fear that may have been uh, pushed into your head by somebody who didn't have your best interest in mind or was just doing what they thought was best and inadvertently taught you to be afraid of things that aren't necessarily scary. So that's one way of doing it. Uh, another way is called desensitization. 
Um, and this technique works toward decreasing somebody's sensitivity to the objects or the situations that cause the fear. Uh, it combines relaxation pre- pre- uh, procedures with a, with a repetitive presentation of, of a graded series of stimuli. Um, so in one example, we can, we can do this with anything. We can do this with, uh, with spiders. We can do it with the dark. We can do it with heights, certainly. But, you know, people have a fear of flying. And so one way of doing this, uh, this desensitization is by starting with something small. So maybe uh, if you have a fear of spiders, we might uh, introduce you to – now, that's a, that's a bad example. We'll go with fear of flying. Um, a fear of flying. So uh, we might start with a picture of a plane. And then we'll start, and then uh, once you can tolerate seeing the picture of the plane, we might do a picture of a plane taking off. And then we have a picture of a plane landing. And then we move to holding a model die cast plane. And then we move to a larger plane uh, that where the propellers turn and maybe it makes noise and lights. And then we move to um, maybe some visual guided, guided visual imagery of can you picture yourself getting on the plane and flying? And, and so, so we move through this thing. It's a, it's a slow desensitization with, with um, ever-increasing stimuli to the point that eventually you're able to get on the plane and have a nice flight without the worry. So uh, the previous one, which is the introduction, introduction of uh, rational statistics and data, uh, you may say, well, flying is the safest mode of transportation we have. Well, that, that may not work for somebody. Uh, they're still like, you know, hey, planes can drop out of the air. And, well, yeah, okay, maybe they can. Uh, not very often, though, and certainly not as often as cars crash and claim lives. And yet the same person may not have any problem getting into a car, uh, knowing even that logically that the risk is much higher. So uh, the, the experience of desensitization has to do with experiencing small bits of fear. And if you think about the wave, it, it'd be a little tiny wave and a little bit bigger wave after that, and a little bit bigger wave after that one. And eventually you build up to the point where you can tolerate the fear itself and not have to bail out of it. So um, you were, you're carefully and gradually brought through the, the grades of fear. That's, that's the point. We don't, we don't just, like, rip you through it in one session. It's, it's done over time and, um, and, the, and through, through a lot of um, heavy... Uh, monitoring. So that's one way, uh, desensitization. Now, there's something called implosive therapy, and nobody really knows exactly how it works, uh, or so goes the, the literature. But uh, I do this a lot with my clients, and I'll, and I'll take you through a, a technique, or a, a, I'm sorry, an example here in a second. But basically what it requires is uh, somebody to imagine a highly tra- traumatic event, and then um, you pull back from it. So what I do is I, I go to the worst. I just help them imagine the worst uh, case scenario. And in my mind, the reason this works is because you've already imagined the worst possible thing. So then that makes the thing that you're actually facing not so bad. So what I've done is instead of um, building up wa- a small wave, a little bit bigger wave, a little bit bigger wave, I just go straight to, the, to helping them imagine the largest wave of emotion possible and saying, look, you can ride through that and would life end? No, because emotional experiences don't typically end lives. Um, although I guess a startle response could stop someone's heart. But again, that's an unexpected consequence. Uh, you know, it's an unexpected event. So um, when you're talking about fear and facing a fear, we go to, we go to the extreme we have them imagine that, and then uh, and then we say, "All right, now now now, do you think you can handle this thing?" So let me give that concrete example. Let's take a test anxiety. We got a maybe a high school senior who needs to take an exam, and there's a lot writing on it. So I'll say, "So what happens if you fail?" 
and and I don't allow catastrophizing uh, the, to things that are irrational. So it's like you know, if, if I said, "What happens if you fail?" and the and the kid says, "I'll die," I'll say, "Well, no, that's that's not reasonable. That's that's not on the table. You're not going to die if you fail a test." But but let's let's pretend that you fail the test. You don't graduate. You don't get into school. Um, your parents are massively disappointed. Let's say they even kick you out of the house. And, and by this time, the kid's probably shaking his or her head, going, that's not going to happen, Jake. It, but I say, go with me on this. Let's say that it actually does happen. You get kicked out of the house. You end up having to work a, a job you don't want until you can you know, enroll in community college, reestablish yourself, whatever. And then by, then by that time, I'm already talking to them about the solution, right? The long-term end of tolerating this this horrible thing that let's pretend the worst thing happens well you're still going to land on your feet at some point because i know this person's resilient and whatnot and if i don't know that i'll just drop it in their lap and say like tell me what the worst thing is well they'll kick me out of my house and i won't go to college and i won't get my degree and i'll be a massive embarrassment to my family so on and so on and so on and i go okay and then what well i uh i don't know i guess uh i'd have to get a job okay and then what well i'd save up for what a car a house a college you know, I'll get to go to community college. I'll, I'll let them lead to their own conclusions. And then we can come back to the test and go, all right, do you think you can take this test now? And then usually they'll look at me and go, well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> so the anxiety has gone. So that's implosive therapy where um, we take the most extreme thing and we, and we, we move it inward. We, we take the, the extremes and we press on them so it, so it implodes. Uh, and then we have something called modeling, and that's where uh, – that, so these are all techniques for controlling fear if you're joining us a, a little bit late. So we have modeling, and that's where someone learns through observation uh, by, a, by a trusted individual, usually a loved one, um, somebody significant. It could be a counselor actually or a therapist who shows the client how to approach and handle situations that might elicit the fear. Um, Parents can use, I mean, parents use this all the time when they show children how to confront and cope with perceived dangers. Now, we don't want to make the mistake uh, of approach, and this is one of uh, Christian Conti's five errors of communication. One of them is the error of approach, and it's illustrated by a great parable of the watermelon slayer, and I won't tell it. I'll let him tell it some other day. But um, the idea is that you you can you can make the error of approach by invalidating somebody's experience by saying, that's not scary, Look, and you, you just like pick up the thing and throw it or whatever. Like if they're you know curious about a, a worm, I've got a toddler. He's curious about all sorts of insects, uh, and he might be afraid of a worm. He's not. He loves them. He plays with them. But but he might be afraid of a worm, and I'll, I'll go pick up the worm and be like, "That's that's not scary. That's that's something that need belongs in the garden." I'll just pick it up and throw it away. Well, what have I just taught him? I've taught him that his emotion of fear doesn't matter. That I'm not going to listen to him. He doesn't have an audience, and that worms are be to be discarded. And I don't want to teach that to my kid. What I want to teach him is, you know, respect for life and uh, appropriate, um, you know, order in the hierarchy of the food chain and all sorts of things. So if he's, a, if he's afraid of the worm, I would come alongside him and say, ooh, yeah, let's see what, what's scary about that worm. And I'll make him tell me what, what he thinks is scary. And he might not be able to. So I might actually literally put words in his mouth because that's my job as a parent is to teach what – Fear is, and I want to teach all emotions. I want to label them accurately because where else is he going to find it out? Television, social media. I don't want him doing that. I want to, I want to control my kid, and allegedly I'm some sort of expert in emotionality. So of course I I would think I'm the best one to teach him this. But I'm his dad too, and I want him to I want him to rely on me, and I want I want to have credibility. So I'll approach him like, ooh, yeah, that does look like a scary worm. Do you think it's really scary? Yeah, yeah, it's really scary, Dad. Okay, well, what's scary about it? It wiggles. Oh, now is that 
is that cur- is that interesting or is it scary? And he might go, it's interesting. Uh, and then if he doesn't, I'll just say, I think it's interesting. Also, I'll talk him into something that's not scary. The worms aren't scary. They don't have to be scary. They can be interesting. So I'll help him accurately label things. But that's known as modeling, where I go up and I approach the thing and I tell, I, I demonstrate that it's not as scary as he makes it out to be. And then we've got something called emotion regulating emotion. And that's where you can actually face a fear and channel something different to override it and help cope with it. So um, anger can absolutely help override fear, uh, especially in the case of attacks like you know assaults and batteries and uh, purse snatchings and that kind of thing. So um, if, if you're afraid in the moment and you don't want to be afraid because it paralyzes you, and I'll, I'll touch on that in just a second, um, anger can help motivate to you know, defend and strike and, and run away even, um, or run after, you know, if, if that's necessary. But I mentioned the, the paralyzing. So we often talk in terms of fight or flight or fight, flight, or freeze. Um, fear is said to cause, uh, at least two of those, the, the, the flighting, the fleeing, I'm sorry, the, the, the fleeing and the freezing fighting is usually done out of anger or contempt. Uh, and I cover those in the other podcast, but when you freeze, um, we don't really know why this happens, but the suggestion is, again, an evolutionary one that, that seems to hint at freezing because there are some predators who prefer moving objects as their prey. So maybe many, many years ago, uh, we, would, we would pause and just hope that we could blend in. And there's lots of evidence across the animal kingdom for this where people freeze in place hoping that they're not seen and then they don't become prey to the, the, the predators. So we can have a, fl- a fight or flight, and then the freeze comes in. All of this is, is done out of the, the root of fear. So remember that fear is, um, its purpose is to tell us that there's a threat or a danger present, and, um, and it can be both uh, rational and irrational based on how we're taught. And it can be uh, also it can be both uh, a, a physical threat to self or others, or it can be an ideological threat to ideas. And um, I want to spend just a little bit on, of time on that ideological fear part and um, and help help you understand what I mean by this. If I have a belief system and I don't care to have it challenged, uh, it may not necessarily align with reality. So. If I believe, we'll go back to the racism example for a second. If I believe, um, for those of you who haven't looked me up, I'm, I'm a white man. I'm just putting that out there. So if I happen to have a belief that um, people of color are dangerous, right? So I've got this belief that they're scary and uh, I don't want anything to do with them. I'm not, by the way. I'm <laughs> very proudly integrated in my community. But um, I may have that. So I have this view of the world that says that people of color are scary, and now that's that's a an irrational fear because I don't have any evidence to support it. I haven't been, you know, robbed and beaten by only people of color in my life or anything like that. So we'll just pretend that it's irrational. It was planted there by uh, something else. Now, as I go through life, what I mean by doesn't align with reality, I'm going to have to encounter the, the very obvious reality that people of color are, are not scary. Uh, they're quite pleasant. They're all human beings, just like I am. We all have the same capacity for great and terrible. And so as I go through my life and I see repeated evidence that people of color are not scary, I'm going to have to integrate that somehow. Integrating it means I have to let go of my belief that they are scary. 
Now that in and of itself could trigger fear because I'm having to let go of something and I don't necessarily have something to replace it with. That uncertainty, that imbalance, that uh, not knowing what's coming can breed anxiety. It can breed a fear. So that in and of itself is is a it's an accurate fear. It's an it's a it's a legitimate fear. It's a rational fear because I'm having to let go of my belief system, and I don't necessarily have anything with which to replace it. When I say irrational fear is the fear that the people of color are scary. That's that's not rational. What is rational is having to let go of that ideology and not necessarily replace it with anything. That's reasonable. But the way that I can overcome that is by simply learning to tolerate the fear itself and then intaking new information that says, I'm okay with letting go. I don't know what's coming. I can embrace mystery. And then eventually the new information comes in and says, people of color are, are wonderful. Uh, they, they add vibrance and, and diversity to my life and so on and so forth. Um, I can then integrate that in and find a new sense of peace and calm that now has expanded my my horizons. So that's an ideological threat. So when when actual reality doesn't line with my perceived reality, that can trigger fear. It's a legitimate fear, but it's also one that doesn't necessarily need to drive decision making because uh, the threat isn't to me, it's to my beliefs. And as we all know, beliefs can change. I can change my mind about anything, and I certainly hope that I do. And I want to model that. Uh, I, I, I can use that implosively, uh, you know, to do implosive therapy. I can desensitize people uh, to it. Uh, I can use all those methods of overcoming fear when it's a threat to belief system or ideology, just the same as I can when it's a threat to physical harm or physical well-being. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, I could spend forever talking about this stuff. I really enjoy it, and I think I think there's lots of uh, application. So. If you like this stuff, please reach out to us and tell me how awesome it all was because that just, I don't know, that makes my day. <laughs> but uh, info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org is how you how you reach me. Give 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 me ideas for, for new shows. I mean, I'm doing this, but I'm basically shooting into the dark if I don't hear from the audience. Um, so tell me what you want, want to hear. Uh, ask questions. Um, if you have personal anecdotes that you want to share, you, you just have hypotheticals that, that want to be solved. Definitely send those on email. I don't. I, I love listener mail. It's it's amazing. It, it drives a lot of content. So um, beyond that, it's just nice to to hear from people, and it doesn't feel so much like I'm speaking into a, an empty microphone that just kind of gets disseminated into the ether, never to be received by human ears. <laughs> so anyway, um, thank you very much for listening. It's always humbling to know that people do. And uh, on behalf of the Zephyr Wellness family and the Noggin Notes team. I wish you all great mental wellness. We'll see you again in a week. 